Hey, everybody, and welcome back to Bikes and Big Ideas on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm David Golay, the bike editor at Blister, and you can check out all the stuff that we've been riding and reviewing recently over at blisterreview.com. Okay, so a couple of weeks ago, Orange Bikes announced their Phase AD3 Adapter 3-wheeler, and when I read a little bit more about the story, I knew we had to have Alex Desmond, the man behind the project, on Bikes and Big Ideas to talk about it. And I'm very pleased to say that today's the day, because not only is the Phase AD3 an incredible-looking bike that has the potential to open up mountain biking to some people who previously wouldn't have been able to, but also the story behind its origins is a remarkable one. So without further ado, let's get right into my conversation with Alex. Hey, Alex. Well, it's great to have you on, and we're going to be talking about a pretty remarkable project that you've been embarking on for quite a while now with a pretty great backstory behind it. So how are you today, and where are you today? Uh, I've pretty much just got to Finale Liguri in Italy. Um, I have been in Switzerland for the past couple of weeks with Lorraine, um, doing some more development work on the bike. But uh, at the moment, I'm in Italy to support the Orange Bike guys in their uh, EWS factory racing efforts. Oh, that's great. Sounds like you're keeping busy. How are things over there? Been been going well? Yeah, uh, I did the EWSE 100 race yesterday just to kind of get a taste for it myself. I always think kind of getting your hands dirty and getting in there is the best thing to do. Um, it turns out it was pretty much one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life and damn near killed me. But uh, I finished, so I was pleased with that. Yeah, that's, that's good. Finishing's an accomplishment. Well done there. So... To get into the bike we're talking about, though, some people might have seen the Orange Phase ED3 adaptive trike that you've put together for Lorraine Trong. And to start, I suppose, why don't you just tell us a little bit about what the bike actually is and how you put it together? Okay, so um, it's an adaptive mountain bike. It's um, at the moment we're calling it the Orange Phase AD3. Um, so the AD3 is Alex Desmond 3. Effectively, I came up with the concept for this bike roughly about six years ago now, um, following on from seeing kind of the Martin Ashton down the out videos where they, uh, they put Martin on a bucket seat bike. Um, so that's like a conventional mountain bike that's got a, a sit ski seat attached to it, which supports your kind of lower legs and your core. Um, and in that particular video, you see him, I think, ride down Fort William. Uh, and I kind of looked at it and thought there could be something done that's a lot better than this. Um, maybe somebody's already done something that's better. So I did some Googling and some research and was a bit surprised to find that there were a lot of hand trikes and bikes that were very low to the floor. Um, but other than the kind of bucket seat bikes that have a lot of inherent risk associated with them in terms of falling off the bike, there was nothing on the market that I could see that I would want to ride if I was in a position that I needed to uh, following, for example, a spinal cord injury, because um, I would still want to ride something that felt like a conventional mountain bike. So I then set about trying to come up with a way of creating something that felt like a conventional mountain bike, but was accessible to people with, for example, spinal cord injuries, or in Lorraine Trong's case, um, an acquired brain injury, which means she has a paresis, which is a partial paralysis. Yeah, it's a pretty remarkable looking thing. And for the folks who haven't seen it, we'll put a, some photos with the post on the show notes. But I guess the way I would sort of describe it is that from the side on, apart from the bucket seat, it looks pretty nearly like a normal bike. But where it really differentiates itself is that there are 
two forks and two front wheels, which are connected via a parallelogram linkage that essentially contains an extra head tube on either side of the, call it the regular head tube on the bike. And on that linkage, those the two forks and the two head tubes can tilt relative to each other to allow the bike to lean over. Is that a pretty accurate summary of what the bike is and how it kind of went, goes together at the very high level? Yeah. Um, I don't know if people have seen the, the leaning three-wheeled motorcycles. I think Yamaha do a um, Yamaha Nikon and there's a couple of scooters. Aesthetically, it doesn't look too dissimilar um, from those, except for the addition of the the bucket seat bike. Um, the main difference between the leaning motorbikes that you'll possibly have seen uh, and this is with the leaning motorbikes, you still have to balance using your legs and your uh, your lower body. With the design that we've come up with, you can interact with the balance of the bike using your upper body and your arms. So you, once you're in the bike, you don't need to put the feet down. Uh, it means you can do stationary or low speed balance, which means that people without the use of their legs can ride the bike, which isn't the case for the leaning three wheelers that you uh, might just see around. Right. Okay. So the bit you're describing there is with there's sort of a little extra handle or handles on the sides of the parallelogram linkage, right? So you can kind of stabilize the whole arrangement with your hands there without having to put a foot down on the ground. Is that what you mean? Yes, that's correct. So like you said, this project kind of got started six years ago. And as I understand it, you were essentially doing this on your own time kind of as a side project and apart from seeing those martin ashton videos that you mentioned was there anything in particular that sort of drove you to do this or did you have some plans to eventually bring this to market or any how what was kind of the the vision for it at that stage i guess um i'd worked for quite a few big engineering companies um by this point in my career and i'd seen the focus very much driven by profit basically like we will only engineer a product that we know will deliver a profit and profit isn't why i became an engineer i became an engineer because i wanted to solve interesting problems and kind of help people and do interesting things um, and I had a I had a kind of surreal experience where I I saved a dog on the motorway and I got this real um, moral reward from it afterwards and it just kind of set me thinking to you know I can use my free time and my evenings to try and come up with something that gives me that sense of moral reward instead of chasing those profit margins. So effectively, I kind of chose this. I'd always kind of loved the three wheeled leaning concept. But I kind of saw it as not really having a a particular place in the market. Um, but then when I saw the kind of Martin Ashton videos and I saw that there were people who wanted to ride something that felt like a conventional bike but didn't at the moment have anything that was available to them, um, I thought, well, there's, there's this potential here. If I can figure out a way that people can have a, a mountain bike that can balance and ride around normally, then, you know, we've got a real uh, use for these three-wheeled leaning concepts. So I kind of then had to go through the whole process of, you know, a motorbike is very different to a mountain bike in terms of weight, for example, is a big thing. Um, so the key thing about the bike that I came up with is it's got a, a single-sided um, or cantilever 
Lelogram linkage, which means that you only have one set of bearings, one set of arms. And what this allows is basically we can apply this linkage to any conventional mountain bike. Whereas, for example, when I talked about the motorbikes, they're all bespoke chassis. Whereas this is literally we could take any bike, for example, in the orange range, and we could put this linkage on the front of the bike. And then there you go, you've got an adaptive mountain bike instead of there is one particular model that you have to have and it has to be this particular bike. As we kind of alluded to, the version that you've put together for Lorraine's built around the orange phase e-bike, but with a throttle motor swapped in rather than a pedal assist version, if I have that right. And is it apart from that really just a stock frame or have you made some adaptations to the frame itself in order to accommodate the whole linkage and all of that? So there weren't actually many changes. Well, there aren't really any changes to the frame other than the adaptation of the linkage on the front. We added some uh, what I call pedal locks for the cranks on the bike. So you'll notice on Lorraine's bike, her cranks are rotated 180 degrees. So they're, they're in line with each other and they're locked in a certain position. And she then locks her feet into those, a bit like you'd have on a motorbike, for example. Um, so we just had to create a bar, but we used one of the original motor mounting points for this, um, which means that, yeah, there were, there were effectively no significant changes. Uh, when we went through, or I went through and engineered the front end of the linkage, what I actually did is looked at what the original bike was capable to do in terms of um, how big a accelerations the bike could deal with, how strong it needed to be, and actually just engineered the front end up to the same level to meet the rest of the bike, which means that the front end linkage is just as strong as the rest of the bike, basically. So anything a conventional orange phase can do, the orange phase AD3 can do. So that's that's pretty neat that it is sort of adaptable like that, and it didn't require such dramatic modifications to the frame in order to work, right? And is it fair to say that sort of one of the other fairly major kind of design goals, I suppose would be the word for this that we haven't really talked about yet, is that it's got for a three-wheeled thing a relatively narrow track such that it can be ridden on a lot more normal trails rather than having to have relatively wide trails built for an adaptive bike and a lot more flexible in terms of what, where you can actually take it as a result of that. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean... I looked at, again, a lot of the competitor products um, on the market for adaptive bikes, which mainly focus on hand cycles. So bikes where you'd sit in low to the ground, maybe have three wheels, some uh, lean over and some don't. But they all have to be very wide to be stable. As soon as you kind of get up any speed without being able to lean over, you have to increase your track quite significantly, which, as you say, means that you're limited to purpose-built um, adaptive mountain bike trails. Um, and I think it's really great that uh, those products exist um, and people can access them and they allow a, um, a greater level of access to people with higher level of injuries, for example, than might be able to ride the Phase 83. Uh, but in the Phase 83's case, what I really wanted to do was create something that I could literally go and ride my local single track trails on. Because again, I just kind of tried to put my own um, perspective on it and think about what I would want. And at the end of the day, I'd still want to be able to roll out my front door, go down the road and go down some trails. So I actually started out with a 300 mil track width. And then uh, we tried a 350 as well and a 400. 
and they all kind of had slightly different advantages and disadvantages. The 300 was the most responsive and felt the nicest, but it was a little bit more difficult to balance. Um, the 400 millimeters was uh, easiest to balance, but you kind of started to notice it felt a little bit cumbersome at times, whereas the 350 just seemed to be the sweet spot where you had something that was easy and intuitive to balance. So, you know, I've, for example, when we first built this bike, I took it to the Orange factory and pretty much everyone in the Orange factory wanted to go and sat on it. And literally, I mean, there was one of the ladies who worked in the paint shop who had a go, managed to balance it. And then afterwards, she said she hadn't actually ridden the bike in about seven or eight years kind of thing. So it was um, nice for me to be able to see that even somebody's kind of not actually that used to riding was able to kind of sit in it, get a hang of the balance and just ride off. But still with the 350 mil track, it just, it's actually no wider than your pedals. So if you imagine your normal mountain bike, your pedals are often the kind of the actual limiting factor. Obviously your handlebars you can twist and get through and it's the same with the AD3 that you can twist the bars, but keeping that 350 mil pedal width, which is about the same as your outside of your pedals, just meant that anyone who's dug a trail for a normal mountain bike, this bike can then get down those trails. Yeah, that part of it seems especially important and I kind of, as you noted, differentiates it from the other various adaptive bikes and takes on the three-wheeled adaptive mountain bike concept that I've seen and seems like quite a strong advantage here. To circle back a little bit though, let's talk a little bit more about some of the more early development of this before Orange got involved. When you were working on this in the earlier days yourself, tell us a bit about what the prototypes looked like, what you were building those around, and were you just testing these yourselves or yourself rather with the idea that you'd you know find some some people who really needed the adaptive aspect of it to work with later, or did you have friends or people you got in touch with who really needed an adaptive bike who were helping you with the testing? How did that all go? Yeah, so like I said, it was about five or six years ago. Um, and in the early days, I uh, one of the things I have mentioned that kind of kick-started me doing this project is I had a friend who had a stroke and he taught me to ride motorbikes. And my early idea was to build the bike for him, basically. Um, actually, as things turned out, his physical condition and um, didn't allow him to ride the bike and it kind of wasn't his focus anymore. Uh, so I reached out to a few people. Um, one of them was uh, Steve at uh, Can't Quit Cartel. Um, so he's a keen mountain biker and he's got his own clothing brand now. Uh, Steve has a T12 spinal cord injury. And uh, I met him at Ard Rock, which is a race in the UK. Um, I kind of walked up to him and said, uh, oh, do you like mountain bikes then? And he, he gave me a bit of a sarcastic look because he was sat in his um, chair. And, uh, and then I kind of explained why I was asking. And he said he was really keen to have a go. So I took the first prototype, which um, was actually based off a 2006 Intense Tracer. And I can send you some photos of it, actually. Um built around 110 mil travel forks and, you know, very old school geometry to where we are now. And with various different motors I went through, I kind of started off with a 250 watt motor just because that was the standard kind of pedal electric motors that were available and then realized that wasn't going to be enough. 
So it went up to like a 1.25 kilowatt motor. Um, obviously, e-bike motors are designed for assistance. They're not designed for sole propulsion. Propulsion. So you need quite a bit more torque and power than they can provide. And Steve, one thing again I haven't mentioned about Steve is that uh, he actually brought Martin Ashton's original bucket seat bike off him. So Steve had actually ridden the bucket seat bikes and I... Once I kind of got to talking to Steve, we identified some of the kind of issues that the bucket seat bikes encounter. And actually, I rode the bucket seat bike myself. And one of the things you don't appreciate is when you slow down on the bucket seat bikes, you obviously can't balance and you topple over. That's one thing. But when you're going fast, you actually can't move your center of mass around on the bike, whether it be forwards to backwards or side to side which means you put a lot of extra demand for grip on the front tire. And uh, we went to one, I think we did one uplift day with Steve on a bucket seat bike and we did three runs and he crashed uh, six times in three runs. And it wasn't, he wasn't crashing because he isn't a good rider because he is a good rider. He was just crashing because he, he couldn't move his center of mass around and he needed more grip than what a conventional single wheel bucket seat bike could offer. Um, which was again, one of the things that pushed me to having the two wheels at the front of the uh, adaptive bike that I was designing to offer that increasing grip over the conventional bike, just to allow you to um, push a bit harder at high speed. Um, and in addition to this, one of the learnings from this was that you needed to be able to move your center of mass, which hasn't been picked up a lot in the range, but I came up with a couple of concepts, one of which was like a sliding seat, uh, which we've tried and some people get on well with that. And the other one was actually like a suspension seat post, which actually adds another layer of suspension and damping to the in between the seat post and the frame. And it just allows the riders to actually um, pump and slightly move their center of mass up and down on the bike, which makes jumping a lot easier, for example. Um, and actually, after that, I then got in touch with uh, Martin Ashton as well. Um, and I went and met Martin uh, close to where he lives, actually. And we had some conversations about what he would want the bike to do and how he would like the bike to behave. And he, he was interested particularly in like a single handlebar version of the bike, which um, I actually went away and then developed a single handlebar version, which hasn't been released publicly yet. Um, I'm still waiting for a few patents to come back on that. But uh, yeah, there's actually a single handlebar version of the bike where you don't need to move your hands between the two uh, handles. There is, uh, as with all these things, a compromise. Going to a, a single handlebar version, it, it doesn't feel like a conventional mountain bike anymore to ride because the bars actually move as you lean over. The sensation is more akin to sit-ski riding. And as I basically started to progress and got different riders and uh, different people to ride the bike. Pretty much everyone came back to, they wanted it to feel like a bike. That was a big thing is the more it felt like a bike, the, the better. Whereas the having this separate balance handlebar to the steering handlebar gave that once you're in there and you go in, it just feels like a normal conventional mountain bike to ride. And I think in Lorraine's case, um, you know, when she first sat on it, she said it's the first time I've done anything that felt like riding a mountain bike in six years. So she said it was the greatest day of her life, uh, but she said that a lot since then. So I don't know if it's actually just one of those things that she says, to be fair.
that well, a lot to dig through there. So I guess to make sure I'm visualizing this right for the sliding seat, are you is this basically on a, a track so that the seat can move fore aft on the bike and you the rider would kind of push and pull themselves back and forth using some combination of the bars and the pedals to change balance on the bike? Is that about right? Yeah, basically, it was actually a 3D printer rail that I uh, found that was the right size. And uh, we actually I ran a motorbike steering damper on there just because you can't have like uncontrolled movement. So it was like a damp sliding motion on there as well. But yeah, exactly what you described. I'm also a little bit curious about the suspension seat post version of that. I'm imagining that for that to work right, you'd kind of need to have the the seat post sprung relatively soft relative to the rear suspension so that you can the rider can choose to compress through the seat post for moving their center of mass around without also just plowing through the rear suspension at the same time. How did that work out? Yeah, the kind of concept initially was let's try and, you know, obviously on your mountain bike, if you're doing a rough descent, the first thing you do is stand up. You don't sit on the seat, um, which for, for these riders, they're strapped into the seat, so they haven't got a choice to change that effectively. Um, so what we were trying to do is replicate something that behaved characteristically in the same way as a rider standing up. So come up with something with the same stiffness as someone's legs would achieve, basically. What actually happened is riders have different preferences. Lorraine actually likes hers really stiff. Um, so hers is wound right up to the maximum and the stiffness, and she effectively uses it like a, a kind of additional bump stop on the rear suspension, whereas other riders liked it really soft so they could like pump through their arms and get the seat to move up and down. Um, that was kind of where I started with it. But like I say, like you can design things all kind of ways and people will just do what you never expected them to do. And I think uh, literally about two weeks after dropping the bike off with Lorraine, she sent me a photo of a, um, a full-on trailer attached to it with a wheelchair and a dog sat in it. And she'd been going and doing a grocery shopping with it. I just never for a million like years imagined that someone would want to strap a trailer to it. But that was literally the first thing she went and did. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. You could have all the ideas in the world about how it's going to work and once you put your product out in the world, people are going to get creative and do a whole lot more with it that you perhaps never envisioned in the first place. And I think sort of the – you've talked about this a little bit already, but some of the sort of flexibility that Blake affords for how you would set it up and how it could possibly be adapted to sort of different disabilities, different injuries, different sets of needs is very interesting. So, for example, like we talked about, Lorraine has hers set up with a just full electric propulsion with a throttle, but you could also run a pedal assist version of it. For example, you've got the Martin Ashton spec single handlebar version in the works. If I have it right, Lorraine is basically using the secondary balance lever just on the single side, just because the left's her stronger one. Uh, But I've also seen photos of it set up with that lever on both sides. I'm a little curious actually about how people tend to use those is that secondary balance lever. And again, for the folks listening, there'll be some photos in the show notes that'll probably make this a lot more clear than our verbal descriptions will. But are, is that mostly meant to be used for very low speed balance and getting on and off the bike or are people switching back and forth while moving with some regularity? How does that tend to go? So, yeah, it's one of the things I found is early on, you kind of think you'll a solution that just balances the bike when you're stationary is all you need. But actually, basically, if you imagine anything that's um, push bike trials kind of speed, um, so very slow speed, very technical, high, high movements, 
you actually need that, um, that secondary balance bar. Uh, a good example I found of where people are using it is uh, you can actually reverse the bike. Um, so, for example, if you're on a trail and you come up to a, a closed gate or something, you might need to open the gate and then back away from the gate which if you imagine riding a normal bike and trying to do that, obviously you put your feet down. So in that scenario, you need that secondary balance bar to just control yourself while you're, for example, rolling backwards. And then like when you're pulling off again. Um, so yeah, it, it's, but it, it's, it's interesting because it, again, it's a bit of a personal preference because you can, you can hold that handlebar at like 30 mile an hour um, and you can push the bike up with it. So you can actually, if you've ever ridden a motorbike um, and tried to do counter steering, it uh, you know when you steer the opposite direction at speed, so how you're leaning over, it'll pick the bike up. It's a similar kind of sensation to that, but a lot more controlled. So if you wanted to, you could use it at a higher speed. But yeah, the majority of riders are using it at very very low speed and stationary, and like for. Uh, maneuvers that require a lot of balance control, for example, reversing or riding over obstacles at low speed. Even Lorraine now, I went out for a ride with her the other day. We were riding along the trail and there was a log across the trail that was probably uh, about a foot high. And I kind of thought, oh, she's going to have to get off to get over that. But she's now got to the point where she can basically pump the bike, use the throttle, lift the front wheels over and then hop over. And she didn't touch the balance bar at all for that whole thing. And she was doing a really slow speed. Um, and then again, we went and did some switchbacks down a hill and she was basically um, doing what we call European style. So she was coming in on the front brake, lifting the rear wheel off, hopping the back around and then riding out. And she just didn't touch the balance bar at all. So it, um, it's something I think that all different riders will adapt to a different riding styles. Lorraine's kind of got no fear. So, uh, yeah, she's uh, pretty keen to just go at everything. Uh, it's pretty amazing that she was doing those Euro style hop turns on one. That, that sounds like a sight. Yeah, I was kind of following her and thinking, God, I wish I'd got a camera on me now. But uh, yeah, when you spend a lot of time with a camera, it's kind of nice to have a break and just go for a ride. And then as soon as you go for a ride and there's no camera, you see all this amazing stuff. You're like, oh, God, why didn't I film this? Yeah, I suppose she's not too bad at bikes in general. So I guess if anyone's going to be pulling that off, it's her. But uh, that still sounds really impressive. Yeah, it was a bit uh, annoying, actually, because it means she's actually better on the bike than I am now. When I was riding it for like five or six years, and then she's had it for, I don't know, six six weeks, and uh, she's now better than I am. But uh, I'm, I'm just saying it's because she's small and light and nimble. <laughs> I'm obviously too big and heavy. Yeah, there you go. I, I'm sure that's it. I mean, this has all been some pretty impressive stuff already, but the next parts of the story are also kind of great. So let's move into how you got connected with Lorraine and how that part of the project moved forward. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, it was all kind of a bit random, actually, and it's had a, a huge impact on my whole life, actually, um, considering it's all quite small events that all tied into each other. So. Lorraine is good friends with Orange Bike Switzerland. Um, and they had a friend in the UK called uh, Adrian. Um, he works at a different uh, bike manufacturer in the UK. Um, I'd known Adrian and um, 
he, he knew me and that I was working on this adaptive mountain bike project. And the guys at um, Orange Bike Switzerland were effectively looking for someone to build Lorraine a adaptive mountain bike. Um, so what they did is they reached out to Adrian um, and said, asked him if he knew anyone and he knew me. He put them in touch with me. Um, and we had a, uh, you know, a web conference with Lorraine and I, I showed her the, the bike and what I'd been working on and she was really excited. But, um, at kind of this point in time, I'd only had people with spinal cord injuries, um, ride the bike and I had a real fear, um, that she wouldn't actually be able to ride the bike because, um, she has a few, uh, symptoms of a acquired brain injury, for example, she's got this paresis, which is like a partial paralysis, but she also gets um, motion sickness uh, if she's free, like she can't really do car journeys very comfortably for very long. She gets tired very quickly, especially especially when doing kind of complex physical tasks. Um, and in addition to this, uh, she'd not ridden anything that was like a bike that had worked for her since her injury. She, they'd obviously tried lots of different things and she'd been really keen. So I kind of said the best thing for me to do is just bring the bike to you and um, you can have a go. We'll see if it works and we'll we'll go from there. Then if it works, you know, we'll have another conversation. So we headed out last summer uh, with a bike on the back of my camper van with a sheet over it so no one could see what it was because at this point it was still, I was still going through the, uh, the process of painting it so um yeah we got out there and i kind of showed her the bike and she was just mad keen to get straight on it and uh, with everyone else up to this point with the bike i've been very like sitting them on it really talk them through slowly like how the controls work you know how to balance how to lean and she basically jumped on the bike and kind of like pushed it off the tree that it was lent up against and just rode off and just I just couldn't stop her like within seconds, you know, she was ripping around everywhere and she was trying to do endos, but the brakes were set up uh, UK style as opposed to European. So front to back for her. So she ended up doing a massive skid and nearly falling off. And I'm kind of like running around thinking, oh God, if she hurts herself, am I going to get sued or something like this? And she just, well, like I said, she came back and said it was the greatest day of her life, which was, um, for her friends who were, again, Orange Bike Switzerland, who were there, it was like really quite an emotional um, day and it was great to see uh, for me as well. And I was instantly massively relieved that she could actually ride the bike. And we stayed out there for a couple of weeks with the prototype, which, um, as I said, was only had 110 mil travel, I think, maybe even 90 at the rear. And she was doing kind of red runs in bike verbier uh, or switzerland in verbier which like a red one in verbier is kind of like most people's black runs as well it's just really savage rough stuff um so i could kind of see that she had fantastic potential on the bike and that she was going to be willing to push it so the guys there then are obviously in close connection with um orange in the uk where their manufacturing headquarters is so uh, when i got back to the uk we, they organized a meeting and i went up to see um orange uh, and saw ash the owner of the company there and we had a meeting um i showed him the bike and he's kind of very uh quiet and doesn't give out a lot of what he's thinking about stuff and i was kind of sat there thinking oh god i don't think he likes it actually so we rode it around the car park and stuff like that and uh yeah at the end of the meeting he basically said um 
he'd only do the project if I came and worked for the company, um, as in Orange Bikes, because he thought that was the best way forward to do it. And uh, this was actually probably what I haven't alluded to is uh, six months prior to this, COVID had happened and I'd lost my previous job. And I'd actually spent six months kind of dedicated working on the adaptive bike and hadn't really got a proper income, which is plowing money into it. And, uh, yeah, I kind of turned around to him and said, yeah, well, I'm really busy working on the adaptive bike at the moment, actually. I don't know if I can, if I can do it and uh, jumped in my car and like drove off and was heading down the motorway and then suddenly had this like, oh God, like I really need a job at the moment. And this is like the kind of dream job really, like working at a mountain bike company and developing new bikes and stuff. So then I had to go and hastily send an email and kind of say, um, were you serious about that offer? Because like, if so, yeah, this could work. Uh, so yeah, so then I effectively started working um, part-time for Orange and then also part-time still for myself developing the adaptive bike and now we have this collaboration together basically where Orange are going to manufacture the bike um, which my company designed and in addition to that I actually work for the company and I'm working on their um, their product range at the moment. I've been there for uh, about seven or eight months now at the company. That's pretty incredible. I, I really love that part of the story. So that segues pretty well into what I was going to ask next, actually, is that is this a product that Orange is planning to, to bring to market, make it really a proper production bike? Yeah, well, we we kind of part of the reason we did it this way around is we really didn't have a feel for the demand for the product. It is at the kind of extreme end of the spectrum of the adaptive bikes that exist, you know, it's it offers you the most access versus any bike and the most speed and the most freedom um but it does have its limitations in that it is more difficult to get in and out of the bike than some but as i said there's no way you can have this product without having it look and feel like a conventional bike and deliver that conventional bike feeling so what we decided to do was kind of put it out there and just see what the reception was rather than kind of trying to do a release and trying to sell bikes. And actually, uh, it seems to have gone down really well. I've got, um, I've had about 30 people just emailing me, asking me when they can buy one, basically, which has been really nice. And everyone, every person's got a different backstory and a different kind of slightly different set of requirements, which I expected. And we're, we're basically just going through the process now of working out how many we need to make and, uh, you know, when we when we can schedule them in with the whole kind of part shortage that's hitting kind of everyone at the moment. From what I've seen, has gotten a pretty remarkable reception. It's just been a lot of buzz about it and really cool to hear that you've got people who are interested and lined up for it because it seems like something that could be just tremendously beneficial for the right people at least and really good on you for putting so much of your time and money and efforts into this and it seems like a really remarkable thing. Yeah, thanks. It's been like... Like I said, it's it's taken kind of six years prior, well, say five years prior to Orange to kind of develop all the concepts and how it all worked. And obviously, no one ever sees that. No one ever sees the kind of hours staring at a CAD machine and coming up with uh, concepts that don't work. You know, um, on my on my CAD machine, this is effectively version 5.7. So you can imagine that there's like five full different iterations that didn't work for one reason or another. Um, I think I alluded to it a bit in some of the interviews is it's kind of easy to look at a problem and come up with a solution in your head 
that maybe solves one element of it, but when you actually try and come up with a solution that just works for a whole host of problems in terms of it's narrow enough, it can lean around corners enough, it can do a big enough steering angle, this is when you really start to run in the challenges of like how you actually go about engineering this, which was really enjoyable. Um, and like my partner kind of used to chuckle because like she'd asked me, I, I did a lot of this in my shed. So I brought, when I say shed garage, I brought a CNC machine to actually make and fabricate all the parts. Um, I worked with a guy in the UK who trained me to run and program the CNC machines called Rideworks, who he helped me with the, um, the bearing arrangement and the production one. And, uh, yeah, I'd come in a lot of time from the garage and she'd asked me how it'd gone. And I said, Oh, I learned something today. And, uh, it became this kind of saying where it was great to learn stuff, but sometimes you just want something to work. <laughs> like, and, uh, but it was really nice as well because I'd been doing kind of similar jobs for a long time and I wasn't learning anymore. And it was really nice to kind of do something that. You know, there wasn't a textbook you could pick up and say, how do you design a, a leaning adaptive mountain bike? It was a case of like, come up with a concept, design it, build it, test it, see if it works. If it does work, improve it. If it doesn't work, understand why not and go back to the drawing board, basically. Yeah, I, I spent about a decade working as an engineer, too. I've, I've been there. So <laughs> I certainly hear you on that. But the results all look awfully impressive and we're really excited to see where this goes from here. And this might be a somewhat unfair last question before I let you go, given that pretty much the entire podcast has been devoted to an extremely big idea of yours. But it is called Bikes and Big Ideas after all. And we do like to end asking people just what is their big idea? Do you have anything you can float out here? And it really can be anything totally off the wall and silly or something serious. Truly anything goes. I've got a few, which is kind of uh, my partner thinks is rather the annoying thing about me, actually. Um, so, yeah, pretty much as soon as I realized that the adaptive bike was done, I was kind of on to the next problem to solve. But, um, yeah, I don't want to give too much away because I'm kind of working on some stuff already and I'm coming up with it. But um, I think the whole thing about idlers at the moment is very interesting um, I agree that pedal kickback is bad, but I don't agree that an idler is the best solution, potentially. I think there's a better, better engineering solution to give a rearward axle path than putting an idler, which inevitably causes drag on a mountain bike. So I think, um, yeah, there's one there that I think has a lot of potential to, uh, to go somewhere. Well, that's quite a tease, but, uh, Looking forward to seeing where that goes. I, I'm intrigued. So we've certainly been spending a bunch of time at Lister on a variety of the newer crop of high pivot bikes. And um, yeah, somewhat like you said, there seem to be some pros and cons. So the idea of an iteration on that theme that does away with some of the drawbacks is, is a pretty compelling one. So I guess we'll just have to stay tuned for that. But looking forward to seeing where that goes. Anyway, Alex, taking plenty of your time here, it's, but uh, really appreciate you coming on. And this has been a lot of fun and a really cool project that you've done. And just congrats on everything and getting it out in the world. We're awfully impressed. 
Yeah, cheers for the feedback. It's been really great, actually, because you sit working on something in isolation for like five or six years and you just really lose all perspective of what people will actually think in the end. So it has been really nice to see the positive feedback that it's got. And uh, yeah, thank you for everyone who kind of managed to put a positive comment on Pink Bike for, I think, the first time in history. So uh, yeah, cheers, everyone. Uh, thanks again, Alex. It's been great. Cheers. That's it for this edition of Bikes and Big Ideas. And if you were enjoying these conversations, then we would really appreciate it if you would take 30 seconds to leave us a five-star rating or review in Apple Podcasts. I also want to say thanks to Alex for the conversation, thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode, and thanks to you for listening. From all of us at Blister, please take good care of yourself and everybody else, and we will talk to you again tomorrow on Gear 30, where we'll be checking in with Eric Pollard on everything that's going on at Season Equipment. Bye, everybody.